NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome. I thought you were going to start the show. Yeah, from I like now on. everybody liked when Mike started the Did show. They? All right, cool. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up for season eleven, episode one. Finally, got started on the new season. Definitely got a lot of questions on social media this week. I got Bob here. I got Zach here. Let's do this. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All righty. Well, Mike, that was a a fantastic introduction. I was going to try to take my job back this week, but... uh... Our our listeners have spoken, and they said they like it better when you start the show. So, good job. Thank you. All righty. So, this week's episode, The Perfect Rack, uh, told the basic story of what happened on July 14th, 2004, when Emerson Boyorquez, and I hope I looked up and went through pronunciations, and I think that's how his name is pronounced, but I certainly mean no disrespect if that's not how you pronounce it. There's like a famous athlete or football player with the same last name and pronounces it differently. So. Uh, I'm not real sure, but uh, this episode kind of gave you the baseline of the story. Zach, what'd you think? This new case is really interesting, and I'm excited to jump into it. This whole premise of what's going on is baffling to me of this big shootout, and they have witnesses all over the place and all these names, but we're missing a name. And that's just, it really jumps out to me. And I'm, this is going to be a fun one. Yeah, the, the the case is insane. I can't wait to break it down further. You know, as I said, it's not too often I come into a season where I'm telling you, like, this dude is innocent. Like, he absolutely didn't do this. And it's a story that needs to be told. There's corruption that needs to be exposed. And I'm looking forward to sharing the. And I'm already finding new things as I'm as I'm reading and investigating. As I'm, you know, my intention was really more to tell the story leading into where Pablo's at in his appeals process. But as I'm digging in, I'm already – I told you guys when you walked in this morning, I was like, I'm I'm already hooked, claws are in. I'm shooting off letters to lawyers about things that I found or things that I'm looking for. But, yes, super interesting. I'm looking forward to digging in further and sharing more of the stories. Zach, did you, I see you got some notes there. What else you got? You know, I, I found it really strange The with Adrian naming names in the second interview mm-hmm. compared to the first interview right. and why he wouldn't name names. I don't know if he's trying to hide something. Because the first interview is pretty is relatively quickly after the incident, am right. I right? Yeah. So I mean, why is he trying to not name names if he knows these people? But then, I mean, maybe it's I guess he's just not afraid. Ten years later, or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, I I touch. I don't think it was ever that he was afraid. I touched on it a little bit. I think just in 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 a sentence or two. What he says later, and we'll hear more from these interview more of these interviews later as we go along. But uh, what he says in his twenty seven interview or twenty seventeen interview is that he didn't want the police to go after these guys because he wanted to handle it himself. So at the time, and, and I'm not I'm not speaking out of turn here, his own words were that I was just dumb 
And I just, I had this, I want to take care of these guys myself mentality. Uh, No, you're 100%. That was in the episode, and I didn't even think about it that way or take it that way. I don't know why. I I mean, I completely heard that in the episode. I don't know why I didn't take it that way. Yeah. But I'm great. So it it is interesting. And then also, there's more, there's more to it that you're going to hear in the, in the coming episodes, but he knew, so he doesn't know the guys who beat him up and killed him, but he knows who they are. Okay. And, 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 he, and we, and we do believe these are the same people that he had the altercation with on Monday. That's what he says. Yeah. From, from everything we know, that's, that's who these people yeah, are. Yeah. And there, and there, as we go forward, there's more witnesses that, that confirm some of that stuff um, that we'll get into. But, uh, so he kind of goes into, the investigation with the police was was some kind of assumptions being made uh, essentially and again we'll get into more details essentially everyone knows who did it mm-hmm. he believes the police know who did it and so they're like hey you know look look at this this photo spread which one is it and so essentially he the way he describes it when he he points someone out and it, it, he wasn't just saying like that guy did. He didn't think he was trying to show them, hey, did any of these guys do this? It was it was like, which one of these guys is shorty? It's that guy. Okay. You know, based on just it, so it, there's a lot more to it than that. But it, but but essentially he just he made some assumptions about what was going on. It was one of those things where everything seems so obvious, you know, and then and then, you know, the trial happens and they're like, this guy did it. And he's like, who the hell is this guy? Mm, yeah. He did, he did. So, yeah, it, it's um, it, it's it's pretty complex what happened, and it's pretty complex how much effort was put in by the police and the DA's office to get a conviction against someone who was obviously innocent. You know, you touched on the episode, and it struck me is obviously there's more to that altercation than what we know, right? Which is neither here nor there because it doesn't really tie into the case that's not who's passed away that's not who's convicted but it just is strange that he said i didn't do anything but then they were out to get me it's important when it comes to victimology for us to understand how and why something happened and that's why i you know i always focus on victimology and and so with adrian it was as i'm looking it's like it's funny because i was thinking the same thing that we heard the prosecutor the the ada smith ask say in the interview Mm mm-hmm because, you know, he's saying, he's like, yeah, she called me and said, they want to fight you one-on-one. He's like, who wants to fight you one-on-one? The guys have beat me up before. Well, which one of them? Well, he wanted to fight me one-on-one. And then he sh- and, and then the prosecutor, just, the, the DA just says it. He's like, why would – they kicked your ass. Why would they want to – so I – and this is just pure speculation on my part. And as I said, it doesn't, it doesn't particularly matter for – because to what happened to Emerson or who the shooters were or any of that. I just, I just feel like it was, in my opinion, like it was the other way around that, that he was saying, especially because the witnesses were saying, you know, he comes walking up, pulling his shirt off. Mm-hmm. It, it just seemed more to me, again, just based on speculation that it, that, that he was like, I'm going to go kick your ass one on one now. Makes more sense to me than them saying, now that we beat you up, all three of us, now we want to beat you up one on one. You know, it is a strange case too that, I don't feel like you've taken on before because there is a living victim. You know, that mm-hmm. that's a very strange component to this where obviously we do have Emerson that passed from this shooting, right. but he really wasn't the intention of the, of the attack. Right. So it, it's going to be a strange build for you. No one even knows how he was killed. It's weird. Listen, so far, all the witness statements that I've read and listened to, everybody's like, you know, like, like Adrian and Escobar both said, you know, he was, he was a kid. He's a 17 year old kid. They're like, you know, wait in the back seat. 
they get out and walk forward. The other witnesses says, I saw Adrian walking up and I saw Escobar behind him. Nobody saw Emerson. And so everybody, you know, and then there's, you know, the shooting and everybody's fleeing for cover. Jason's chasing after Adrian continuing to shoot at him and Claudia's chasing Jason. And then they get in the, and nobody realizes that then laying there dying on the, on the pavement is 17 year old Emerson. And, and it just seemed like nobody, nobody that was there witnessing the event even noticed him. And it, which makes sense because where would the focus have been? The guy running down the parking lot, firing a gun. It's it, two guys that are running away where, you know, and, and so it seems to me that he was, he was in between the, the, the shooter in the blue shirt. And where Adrian was, if he was firing across at Adrian. Also, a really strange thing that came in my head while listening to this episode that really has nothing to do with it. What the hell is the drinking age in Texas in 2004? I was wondering the same thing. I'm sure it was 21. Yeah. I mean, it seemed they were all 19-ish is what it sounds like. Yeah. Just in there partying it up every week. Mm Mm-hmm. I was that that really struck me straight. I know it has nothing to do with the case. It just was one of those. I thought I thought the exact same thing when I because I actually looked. I had to go look up Adrian's birthday because mm-hmm. I was like, wait a minute, because I you know I just wanted to know for context sake how old everyone was when I was telling the story, and then it was like, he's nineteen, he's seventeen, this guy's nineteen, he's twenty. Like, how are they in there drinking all the time? But then also the more research I've been doing, like the perfect the, that club was just known for it was it was uh it was it there was a ton of violence constant fights it was it was it was a rough joint from the um from the interviews with a lot of the witnesses they all kind of said the same thing it was it was a latino hangout most most of the patrons there were hispanic and and there was a lot of gang members there there was a lot of fights there was it was just a rough place and so maybe it was just the type of place where you know they didn't give a shit All right, let's jump into these questions, guys. Our first one comes from Lauren. I know nowadays trucks and their drivers are easier to track with GPS, but did the company that Pablo worked for have some sort of tracking system on their trucks? To this, Chris adds, I was wondering the same thing. Didn't they have to fill out a logbook at that time? They did. The logbook is going to come. We're talking about the logbook not on Sunday, but next week. But yeah, there definitely is a logbook that comes in. A lot of what we're going to see. I don't mean to tie this with the logbook is that there was the biggest problem that, that Pablo had in this case. One of the biggest problems was suppressed evidence, evidence that wasn't turned over to his defense. Adrian says, just for background in 2006, a few companies were using electronic logs, but most were still using paper logs, which were entirely filled out by the driver and easy to lie on. I started truck driving in 2008 and didn't use e-logs until 2017 In 2008, my truck's location would ping city and state a few times an hour. Now my company can see exactly what parking spot I'm in at any moment of the day. What do you think, Bob? Yeah, so in this case, they were paper logs, and that's it. So timeline gets real, as you're going to see in this week's episode, and and it'll get even more cleared up next week, timeline's a big issue for Adrian because he was arrested over a month after the crime. Okay. So a- after it's, it's a, over a month goes by, he doesn't have cell phone records. He does He, what he, he has his truck log where he just writes in, you know, when he's off duty and where he was driving, things like that, which are, you know, in, in some cases are put it this way. Every single log happens on an exact hour. 
Okay. You know, so like he was driving here, gets there at midnight. It's never like arrived at 1258, you know, anything like that. Oh, that's like interesting. That. Yeah. So they're just, you know, they're just, they're basic, basically tracking where he's at. I'll tell you this, even when, when he gives his initial timeline, we know now that it's wrong, but he, he didn't have all that information to, to base it on. So yeah, it, it was, there were paper log books. Uh, there was no digital log books in, in his, in his log book. Uh, in a way, what you'll hear about Sunday was kind of used against him. Mm-hmm. Well, I could see that because even the, some of the times that he laid out in the episode himself seemed mm-hmm. a little strange to me. You know, I mean, he does talk about that he had to sit at the at the truck stop for like twenty minutes. For like twenty minutes, but at some point he says he's in t- he's in Houston at at twelve thirty twelve forty five. Right, but then he goes back and says. That he's not there, you know, he doesn't get home until two, which I understand that Houston's a big city, you have to drive across it. Yeah. And there's some time, but I mean, I don't, there were some timing issues in there that I felt were kind of weird. So, in, I left that the way that he did it because, because I think it, it speaks to the kind of the process that went through in the case. So, like he says, it was like 1230, 1245 or so, he, you know, he's estimating in his mind when he gets to Houston. So then he, then he kind of backs into figuring out, trying to figure out more exactly where. And what they found out later, this was after trial. He gets phone records and he shows that he made this call. He remembers making the call when he was in Dallas. It pinged a tower in Dallas and it was at 8.58 p.m. Mm-hmm. So essentially 9 p.m. Well, that drive and I, you know, he said four, four and a half hours. I, I had some people, some people on the, on the fan pages said, oh, you can make that drive in three and a half. So I, I Googled it just to look and obviously it's modern day highways, right. modern day systems. One route is three hours. One route's like three and a half and there is a route that's four. So the main, I can't remember the name, it's 45 or something. There's the main mm-hmm. highway that shoots straight down. When I drove it, the last time I drove that was when Ed Ace was released in prison. I flew into Dallas and then I drove from Dallas down to Houston because I had to work in both places that week. And it took me a good four hours, little spots, traffic here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you go back to 2004, I would, and if, and if we're talking to people around the area, most people are like, yeah, it's a four hour drive okay. from Dallas to Houston. Also, depend both of them are big cities with traffic. So it depends where you're at mm-hmm. in there. But you're also traveling, he is traveling at night. So you're going to have So less there traffic. shouldn't be much traffic unless there's construction, things like that that could still slow down. And there's still a lot of congestion there. But also remember, he's, he's driving a semi truck with a trailer on it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if, you know, the speed limit's 70 now. I don't know if it was 70 in 2004. Well, trucks still have a slower speed limit. 55, 55 usually. 55, I think. Yeah, yeah. So today, the truck so. will have 10 minutes. So he's driving a semi-truck. It was it was longer ago. So I think, you know, I don't. I wouldn't say probably four and a half, but four. Okay. Four, and the fact that he, you know, he's a truck driver who makes that drive all the time. And he's like, mm-hmm. it takes four, four and a half hours to make that drive. So it's the same four hours. So then you kind of backed into that test. So he's like, okay, so if I was in Dallas at nine and you add four hours, that puts me... In Houston at one, which is pretty close to what he thought, right? Mm-hmm. Twelve thirty, twelve forty-five. But then when they got to Houston, they had stopped and you know waited at the truck stop for twenty minutes for uh, his driver's wife to pick him up, and and he testifies at trial and confirms that. And they even well, how do you know it was that day? Besides the truck log, how do you know it was that day? Well, he remembers it very clearly because his son was born two days later. Okay, and it was and he it was his son was born on a Friday, and he happened to be home when he's usually not. Because of that breakdown. So his, his driver confirms. So it's 1, 120 in the morning. Then he has to drive from that location to his parents' house, um, or to, his, to his mom's house. And, you know, he said it's like 40 minutes to get there. Because, the, you know, as he, you heard mention a little bit, like 
I can't take the small streets because he's driving a semi. Mm-hmm. So he's got to take big roads. Takes him like 40 minutes to get over to his mom's house. That right there is putting you at around 2 a.m. Uh, and, and then, you know, then he showers and stuff. And then he ends up going over to his ex-girlfriend's house. Do we know? I mean, I know this is coming later, but do we know geographically, like how close his mom's house is to where that perfect rack is or where his girlfriend's house is compared to that perfect rack? Yeah, um, I don't have that information because I'm going to – that's coming up in, a, in an episode where I'm going to do a time. But I, I have started poke, poking around through it. The tricky part about Houston is it's so big and it, the traffic is so bad all the time. It's really difficult. So, like, you can punch into Google Maps and it will show you or, or Apple Maps, whatever. Oh, you can make that drive in 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. But in reality, can you make it in 30 minutes? Maybe you can make it in 25. Maybe it's 40. And if you're in a semi – you can't even take the route that it's telling you to take. So it's really hard to piece together. So for me, the 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 bigger part of it really doesn't have to do even with with his girlfriend going over to the girlfriend's house. I personally, I think that that the shooting happened before he got home to his parents' house in the first place, before he ever got out of the semi. I I, I personally don't and it's really hard to lock all that down, of course. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it took 20 minutes. Was it 15 minutes? Was it 25 minutes? Was it 18 minutes? Well, and, and not knowing the actual time of the shooting is rough, too, to put on there. And, you know, they say it's about closing time. But what is what is about closing time? Well, we have a pretty good time on the – I mentioned it briefly at the beginning of the episode. But the, the first 911 call came in at 2.06 a.m. Okay. About shots being fired. So I would imagine within two, three minutes – of that, because that because that call didn't didn't even mention Emerson. It just said there were shot. There was people shooting there. So I would say two o four, two o five is probably when it happens. The bar closed at two, so it all fit. You know, somewhere between two a.m. and two o five a.m. is when the is when the shooting happened. Roger that. So if he didn't get home to his mom's house in the semi until two a.m., then it would be impossible for this to happen or for him to be involved. Sarah's got a couple questions here. First, were both Monica and Claudia Adrian's girlfriend, meaning romantic partner? If so, could Claudia have set him up with Jason Woolley and company? I, I don't know about her setting him up. I don't think so. But um, yeah, it kind of sounds like like he was, um, they had a couple girlfriends. You know, so he, he refers to Claudia as his baby mama. Um, I don't know that he even really refers. I didn't use that term on the on the main show. Cause I just, I, I feel like it's this, I said, <laughs> I refer to, to my ex-wife as that one time. We're very good friends by the way, but I was joking around one time and I was like, this is my baby mama. And she told me to never call her that again. So it's a, I don't use the phrase too much, uh, but I have to go back and look and see if Adrian really says that she's his girlfriend at that point. I think they still have some kind of relationship and, and sounds like he also had another thing going on with, with Monica. Um, well, Claudia talks about giving money for a dog. Right. Yeah. I and mean, that seems strange if they're not in some sort of relationship. Yeah. There's all kinds of dynamics there that I don't know or, or get. But yeah, there was something like he said, he said he knew someone was selling a pit bull. And so he came to get 50 bucks from her to go buy the pit bull. But in the story, he never picks up a pit bull. Yeah. That's a strange one. Or goes home. That's, I, yeah. Like, I, I don't necessarily. Buy all. Adrian is a victim in this. I don't necessarily buy all of his details. Next, Sarah wants to know why was the DA's office re-interviewing witnesses and victims in 2017? Uh, because of Pablo's habeas filing. 
uh, he had, he had filed habeas with um, newly discovered evidence and and was seeking ex- exoneration for under actual innocence. And so the DA's office was investigating. I don't uh, we'll get into where things went with that. I don't even particularly know exactly how things shook out with that uh, with that habeas writ. I know a new filing was just made by his attorneys like last week uh, that we'll be getting into later. But I, listening to the interviews, it I was actually impressed with the way that that ADA Smith conducted them. I don't know if he took the information and actually used it, but, you know, he was pretty clear with everybody's interviewing. He says several times for all these interviews that. You know, if Pablo's not the guy who did it, then he doesn't need to be in jail. We just want the truth um, when he's doing them. And he does he does push back on some things. But in some cases, like with Adrian, when he says, you know, why why would they want to kick your ass or, you know, why would they want revenge on you? I mean, those are same same questions I would have. So but that's why it was for the for the habeas appeal. Lene says, Zach, what do you think about Bob describing blue shirt guy as using an assault rifle? So I, I actually, this is the very first note I had in my phone. I showed Mike earlier, which I thought was funny because I had uh-huh. made that note before I saw this comment. And I honestly wasn't even going to bring it up on the show. I was just going to talk to you about it uh-huh. outside the show. But I know your stance. But since a listener <laughs> brought it up, we'll talk about it for a second. We don't need to go on to it for a long time. I'm not a huge fan of that term, of the assault, of assault weapon, assault rifle, whatever it may be. Right. Uh, I'm a firm believer that you know this is a military style weapon you can call it a semi-automatic weapon you can call it a tactical weapon tactical rifle whatever you want to call it assault is an action there's no such thing as an assault rifle i I don't disagree i thought of you as i was writing it (laughs) and this is the question i would i have for you when I said assault rifle, did you know what I was talking about? I 100% knew, and that's why I wasn't going to bring it up, yep. <laughs> because I knew what you were talking about. Yeah. And so did the listeners. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they would have quite understood what I was getting at if I said it was a semi-automatic, long gun, tactical. So I decided to go with assault rifle. She actually calls it a machine gun at one point. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, we'll, we'll, or later, it's, it's not even what really what we would consider to be in a, or what most people would consider to be an assault rifle. So it's it's just some sort of rifle is what we know at this moment. A semi-automatic rifle. It's somewhere between what people know as an assault rifle and what people know as a Uzi. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> Lynn's got a couple questions here. First, so Claudia gives Adrian money and her cell phone, and Adrian leaves the pool hall with Monica. Then Claudia summons him back to the pool hall, and investigators don't find this suspicious of drug dealing behavior. I already questioned the credibility of these three witnesses. What are your thoughts about this? To be clear, he didn't leave with the, the, I think you're blending the two incidents. He was with Monica at the club on Monday night when he got his ass kicked. I don't think Monica, unless I missed something, but I don't believe Monica was there on Wednesday or had anything to do with the Wednesday night situation. And, and, and as we talk, yeah, I definitely, I don't, I don't quite looking at the consistency with Claudia throughout. I don't, I don't really question her credibility or Alice and even Adrian, as far as like the events that he describes seem to line up with things. It's just, I feel like he's just trying to sanitize himself a bit in the whole thing as though he was completely an innocent victim. And it just doesn't seem that that's the way things shook out to me. That's completely how it comes across to me too, is I don't think that he's necessarily not believable. Like I do think he's probably pointing in the right direction, but I agree that he's just trying to make himself appear a little better. Well, yeah. For example, when he describes him walking up, he's like, and I came walking up to him 
And then he pulls out a gun, starts shooting. He completely leaves out the fact that he came walking up and pulled his shirt off on his way mm, yeah. up to fight, which when someone's walking up to you and taking their shirt off, that's usually only for one reason. Next, Lynn says, these characters, excluding Pablo, seem to have a much longer history and more entwined lives than they're willing to reveal to investigators. Do you agree? If you're talking about the characters you just mentioned, which would be Alice, Claudia, and um, and Adrian, I mean, they're, it seemed pretty clear there. I don't know how Alice really fits into all of it other than being friends with with Claudia. But as far as if we're talking about the other names that were named, uh, which was Jason Woolley, who obviously, I mean, there's no question Jason Woolley did it. He admitted he did it. And I think I said I should correct. I, he said, I said in the episode he confessed and said he'd take the hit himself. And then later he says that he only fired a warning shot and doesn't know the guys. That that kind of was his original story. I knew that he that he had confessed, but he still went to trial and was convicted. But that's kind of what he said in his original was the I was. Yeah, I was there. I took the shot. And then, and then he did at one point say he's going to take the hit himself. He's not going to rat out anybody else who was there. But he never really comes out and says in his initial confession that he pulled the trigger and shot uh, as far as. But you're saying his story is not plausible that he pulled his gun out and fired a warning shot and some other random person. He ruined their ambush. They were planning on ambushing Adrian. So that's not plausible to you. <laughs> no, it's not plausible at all to me. <laughs> and then, by the way, gets into their car and drives away with them, as seen by multiple witnesses. So, yeah. No, I don't buy it. Uh, but as far as their connections, we're getting we're going to start digging into the weeds uh, on Sunday. And, uh, yes, there is definitely some connections between these people. All right. And Lynn's last question, our last question of the episode. How did Pablo get on the police's radar? Well, that's the question, right? That's what we're going to be talking about this week. As I said, that, you know, the, Pablo was never really a part of this case, even in his own trial. His name was hardly mentioned at all. And so this week's episode in two days on Sunday is the state's case against Pablo Velez. Check it out. See you next week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. 
You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at Bob Ruff Truth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Yes, there's there's definitely a lot of intertwinement between a lot of these people. Intertwinement. Um, That's a word not, I just made up. Not a word. Not, not a word. word. Let's, let's go not again. Not a word. <laughs> not a word. <laughs>